I have. He's back. Pedro is back. One of the smartest men on this side of heaven. Pedro Gonzalez is back. He's associate editor of Chronicles, a magazine of American culture. And I wanted to really talk to him about what's happening concerning home owners and home buyers in America. And a lot of you know that I've been mentioning that you should buy land, buy yourself a house. It is the American way. But now it's difficult because the people with the money are going out and buying up the homes, uh, uh, single-family uh, homes, and turning them into major apartment buildings. And I want to talk to Pedro about that. Pedro, welcome back. Thank you for coming on. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Yes, sir. Are you a father? Yes, I am. Happy belated Father Day. How was it? Thank you. It was great. It was my first Father's Day. Uh, it was it was very special. And I actually have another, my second uh, baby is on the way. So it was, it was great. I think uh, it's one of those things that you really can't uh, experience it and know what it means until, yeah. until you become a father. That's right. It's an amazing thing. Right on, man. Well, we need a lot of babies, so keep making them. <laughs> Working on it. Pedro, what is happening to the American homeowners and what are the implications for the future of America if we continue to go down this road where the big companies are buying them up? So if you're a young person and you're looking at buying your first house, you might end up competing with a huge financial institution that can just, I mean, if, if you're in the business of building these, these communities, right, these real estate developers, they build these these neighborhoods, and then they, uh, they they sell the houses. Okay, well, if you're in that business, you can either sell each one of those homes individually to some new couple that's trying to get a house and you know start building a foundation. And home ownership has long been considered a way to build generational wealth, right? It's, it's yeah. a way to pass down something that's valuable, something that never really depreciates uh, to our children and to our grandchildren. Okay, so you can sell to them. They have a lot less money than, say, BlackRock, which is one of the biggest, most corrupt money managers in the world. And if BlackRock makes you a deal uh, twice as much uh, per unit as you would get otherwise, who are you going to sell to? You're probably going to sell to BlackRock. And then organizations like BlackRock will ultimately end up renting out entire communities. And so you're in this really strange position now where the country is heading toward rentership yeah. where entire neighborhoods are now being treated like apartment complexes and your landlords are these huge financial institutions that don't really care a whole lot about what I think most everyday Americans do. And I, I was, I recently did a, a Tug Carlson hit about this. And that hit was actually reacting to an article in the Wall Street Journal that talks about this, about how increasingly everyday Americans find themselves competing with these huge, basically permanent capital institutions. Like they're just in the money business and they never go away. Even if they, uh, even, even if something happens to them like Goldman Sachs or something like that, like they get bailed out by you. So they're just always going, they're always going to be around even if you're not. Yeah. Increasingly, we're competing with them for being able to buy houses. When I was growing up in Alabama on the plantation, we were taught that 
we should by land, you know, growing up, it was just part of my, that's all I knew, not all I knew, but we were taught to buy a piece of America, you know, buy land, buy a home. And so at 25 years old, uh, once I turned 25, the first thing I did was went out and got a realtor and I bought a home at 25. And in buying that home, it allowed me to do other things. You know, I can refi, I can do all that. And that's becoming more difficult now for young people to do it. And, and, and as you said, they don't have anything to leave for their children because they are not able to buy land in most cases. I, yeah. it, hardly a day goes by when I don't get some type of notice in mail from these big businesses wanting to buy my home so they can turn into apartment buildings. In Los Angeles, right. these big buildings are going up everywhere. As a matter of fact, before the Chinese virus, the owner of this building that we were in for the business was going to tear it down and turn it into a big complex, apartment complex. But the Chinese virus hit, so they had to put in a hole, I guess. Um, and it's happening all around America. What yeah. can the people do about it? Oh, one other thing I want to tell you, Pedro. In Los Angeles, I love the homes, the style of the homes, right? Mm -hmm. So you can see communities where they really uh, an attractive community. But now that they are tearing them down and building these complex, they are, they are changing the image of the yeah. family, the one family home, the community. It doesn't even look the same yeah. anymore. Right. Yeah, you get what I think one term is McMansions. Basically, all these buildings that maybe they do look nice in their own way, but they all look the same. Yeah. So entire communities with these, like I, I live in Ohio and like in other places in the Midwest, a lot of these houses are very old, but they yeah. also have these individual touches to them. Yes. Uh, like unique uh, work on the outside of the houses with the way that windows are cut or with these kind of ornamental wood carvings under the roof. It, it's really interesting. Like you can drive around my neighborhood and uh, you'll see all these different houses that have these unique individual touches. Basically, you can tell that someone built them with their hands and they built them with the idea of building a beautiful space for people to live in and, and to raise a family in. Right. These McMansions, they all look the same. Uh, they all have basically the same uh, features and you have a little bit of ind individuality, but ultimately uh, when, when you get an airplane and you fly overhead, they all look the same, right? Yes. Um, so I think there's something to that. There's something I think kind of soul crushing about that. I'm, I, and there, I mean, there are people that like living in those places and there's, I guess there's nothing wrong with it, but uh, I don't know if I want to see the entire country become basically a big homogenous uh, development that looks exactly the same, right? Um, yeah. So I think one thing that could be done is making it so that uh, there is a punitive, I mean, like heavy tax on buying real estate in bulk. Basically make it, uh, disincentivize it by just making it not make sense for these people. Like you'll end up losing more uh, in taxes if you do this. And then taxing uh, real estate that is held by hedge funds. These financial institutions that are treating homes like uh, basically are financializing homes. They're, they're treating them as a kind of, as a speculative thing, right? Yeah. Punish them by taxing it. It's like you, if you want to buy houses, then we're going to, uh, we're going to take it out of your skin and make it uh, really difficult for you to profit from this. I think those are just two of the things that we could do. There's a lot more that needs to be done. Uh, and I think it's important also to 
to strain this kind of cultural element to it. If you're living in a space that's not yours, that's rented or leased or whatever, things like gun ownership or like even owning animals, like all that stuff goes up in the air, right? Uh, in some states, your, your landlord can write gun ownership out of the lease. What does that do for this, for like things like the second amendment, right? Yeah. I think these are, there are a lot of questions here. It's like ripples in a pond uh, that, and, and of course the stone that we're throwing in the pond is these huge hedge funds that are underwriting pensions and padding bottom lines by buying up homes. And then the, the social and cultural implications of turning the United States into a nation of renters, where we basically don't have any power over what we own and where we, uh, and yeah. what conditions we can stay in our house. Uh, and, and I think it was funny to watch the, the narrative go from the Wall Street Journal published that story. And then a bunch of other media outlets basically said that the Wall Street Journal was being hysterical. It's not true. They're not doing this. They're not buying up houses. <laughs> the good guys, you're the bad guy because uh, you refuse to allow these old homes to be turned into apartment complexes. So you're actually part of the problem. And then a few days later, there were these stories in Bloomberg and, and other places that were saying, actually, America should become a nation of renters. Amazing. You know, <laughs> it, it's hard to, uh, to test these people and take strong action because of a government is supporting the takeover of communities and build these projects. I used to attend some of those meetings and what they are doing, they are building these big apartment complexes over the uh, idea of bringing in low income people, right? And so yeah. the bottom floors of the apartment building, you know, the first and second floor is for low income people, they say. And then the top floors are for people with money and so the government are helping to fund these buildings. How do we fight against a government that is not for the people and supporting what these big businesses are doing? Well, that's the question, right? I think this is a, this is a long fight. I, I don't think this is something that's going to be resolved in four or eight years. I think this is a long game. And I think that the people that are behind this also know that it's a long game. Uh, yeah. same telling you to not worry about it, you know, to look the other way. They're also investing billions of dollars in the prospect of turning America into a nation of renters. In other words, they're betting on this being the future. So they're thinking ahead. And I think that's what we need to do too. We need to stop uh, focusing on, I guess, things that are not so important and in, in, that are immediately in front of us and that are outrageous and they get our attention. And we should instead be focusing on this kind of long game that these institutions are playing and that, like you said, our leaders are either part of or, or they hope that we don't notice or they don't care because they're, you know, uh, they don't care that they're going to leave behind a worse country than the one that they inherited for their children and uh, grandchildren. It's our responsibility to care and to do what we can to hold our elected officials accountable and to demand that they actually take action against these institutions. I think often politics on both sides become kind of a game of like who can get the angriest about the news today Yeah, and, and just kind of become like an, kind of like an outrage thing. And, and it makes it really easy to lose sight of, of the, this bigger picture and this much longer and, and uh, more serious game that these people are playing. Basically that we don't notice that the future is slipping away from us. Another thing that's very interesting to me is that, 
uh, houses, housing pri- uh, prices have gone up. So these b- businesses come in, and they are offering you a lot of money. And so if you sell to them, you're not able to really go and buy another home because everything is so yeah. expensive. So it looked yeah. like you're making money, but you're really not because you can't purchase yeah. another home. Yeah, there, there was a story recently about that in the Wall Street Journal where a family sold a home and wanted to go buy a new home, uh, but exactly that happened. They couldn't. The, basically, the money that they got from their house could not buy a new house, and they had to actually settle for a, like a fixer-upper, yeah. which nothing wrong with that. But the <laughs> ideally, when you buy a house and you sell it, you are doing that to, to upgrade, to buy a bigger home because right. now you have kids or something. You're not supposed to downgrade into like a worse home or something like that that you have to put money money into to fix. And that's another consequence of the, the financialization of the housing market is that when these huge institutions like BlackRock and JP Morgan Asset Management are buying up homes, they're also artificially inflating the price of housing, which again, that's fine with them because they can absorb the cost of it, but I can't, uh, well, yeah. I can't. I can't compensate for for this the inflation of, of the home price bubble, right? And I mean, eventually, it's kind of a repeat of of what we saw with the, the previous housing crisis. In many ways, there are a lot of parallels here. And if, like some people are warning, this home price bubble does eventually burst because of of the prices that are rising as a result of these financial institutions buying up houses, it's going to be us, the the people that get priced out of housing. Yeah. Get kicked out of our homes, or that get kicked out of home ownership. We're also the same people that get to subsidize uh, any kind of future bailout that's going to happen. Amazing. Um, can you explain to me? I'm black and slow, right? I need to understand uh, this equity firm like Black Rock. First of all, what does it mean, equity firm, and what is a Black Rock? For those who don't know, <laughs> basically, Black Rock is just a huge money managing organization that dabbles in, in different kinds of assets and investments. Uh, it's it's interesting because they're so corrupt, but they are still, uh, they're, you know, they're fine. Uh, they're, they're still able to operate as if nothing, as if they're not doing anything uh, bad. Uh, in Germany, BlackRock recently had its offices raided because it, it was basically exploiting some kind of a loophole in the uh, European legal system for profit. It's really nebulous, like all these different things they have their hands into. They've also got ties to the Chinese government. Uh, they helped set up, I think it was an investment fund with China pretty recently in the last, I wanna say uh, four years or so. They've also got a, uh, a lot of hands in the what the Mexican government is doing. Uh, this is an organization that is bad news and they don't really care about little people. Uh, and I think part of the reason that they're able to uh, to get away with a lot of stuff is, on the one hand, like you pointed out, they basically own our political leaders uh, and, and government institutions. But I think they're also just huge. And for the everyday person, myself included, just it's difficult to fathom uh, and, and understand all the different things that BlackRock has its fingers in uh, and, and to unwind it. And I think that's actually part of it. And I actually am not a finance guy, and but I, when I saw this story, I was like, okay, I, I need to kind of familiarize myself with the basics of this because there's clearly something very wrong going on. Yeah. I think that is something that BlackRock relies on, or, 
for institutions like BlackRock and Lyon is the fact that uh, we don't really understand what they're doing. And therefore we kind of defer to them like, okay, well, you know, if BlackRock has this much money, if the federal government, if the Fed is going to uh, have BlackRock buy up bonds and basically function as the Federal Reserve, then they obviously must know what they're doing. And it's not really our business to question them and, and understand really what's going on. I think that's part of it. And I mean, if you look at media narratives, that's basically what you're being told by Vox, by the Atlantic. It's it's like, well, you know, like they're actually the good guys, take it from us. Like it's complicated, but but they are the good guys in the end. And so this firm is worldwide, is that right? Yeah, they're based in the United States, but they have dealings, like I said, in China, Mexico. Amazing. And so yeah. is it true that they pour money into our government so they can change the laws to fit what they want instead of what we the people want? Yeah, in that sense, they're not dissimilar from any other organization in the sense they lobby the government. But, but the other things that they do, like working closely with the federal government, buying up bonds and things like yeah. that, um, and basically, if you talk to a libertarian about this, they'll tell you that, well, the problem is not institutions like BlackRock, it's the government. And if you can get the government out of it, then basically BlackRock will have no uh, political clout to, to do these kinds of things. But I think what, what these criticisms miss is that on for an institution at the scale of BlackRock, they basically function like the federal government. Uh, in, a, in their own way, they're kind of helping define monetary policy. Uh, there's not a whole lot of separation between what, you know, the interests of the federal government and the interests of BlackRock. They'll go back and forth and, you know, maybe BlackRock will get fined or something like that, but it's it's like the cost of doing business for them. Uh, so, so, yeah, I think this is uh, a different kind of animal uh, in, in what they use their their capital to do. And they also use their, their voting power to steer, um, or they use their institutional power to steer investments away from like, uh, for, like organizations that are involved in manufacturing or uh, are, are pro-Second Amendment, we'll say that. Uh, there's an article I think in CNBC that talks about how in the last few years, BlackRock has decided that if the federal government isn't gonna do something about gun control, well, they're going to do it, and they're going to use what institutional power they have to steer their investors in that direction, away basically from uh, from the foundations of the Second Amendment. Uh, and it's really kind of disturbing because at that point, it's like, uh, do you even need legislation yeah. to basically change, uh, to structurally change things like gun ownership in the United States? Uh, BlackRock seems to think not. Amazing. Recently, BlackRock committed to something called racial audits uh, of their company. And I, I want to know what is that exactly? And do you see this as a common trend in the companies that are buying up these homes? I, I haven't read that story, but is, are they talking about like auditing uh, <laughs> for racial quotas for employment or what does that mean? Um, it's about diversity and inclusion, mm -hmm. and they're using that as yeah. most, a lot of folks are using that right now as a means to get away with doing wrong. 
And um, and I'm wondering, are we going to see more of that in these big companies? It's kind of like a cover-up, really, to rip off yeah, the people. Yeah, well, I think, I think that's that's definitely true. I mean, that's any, my sense of any time a corporation does something like this, uh, anything like affirmative action or like any race-based uh, corporate policy, it's either, I think it's a mixture of, of cynicism, which means they don't really believe in it. Like you said, it's a cover. Uh, but also ideology and in the sense that there are probably some people that really do believe in that stuff. And so I always just assume it's a mixture of both. But I think that even if they do sincerely believe in that stuff, it still conveniently for them works as a cover for things. And a, yeah. a good example is Citibank. So Citibank published this study in September that concluded that the United States uh, has taken a it was like some huge number, like 16 or $30 trillion hit to its GDP as a result of racism. Basically, racism has cost the United States trillion. <laughs> they define it as like lost opportunities, that racism has cost us these opportunities for employment or for whatever, and in the sum total, it's, it's, it's in the trillions, how much money discrimination has cost us. And uh, BlackRock got ton, or not BlackRock, City, uh, Citigroup, which is another huge corrupt institution, right? Uh, they got tons of good press, like NPR, I, I think, interviewed one of this one of the board members, and they were praised as being like the the wokest bank on Wall Street. And uh, everyone forgot that a month later, in October, uh, Citigroup was fined a, a few million dollars. I, I, the, I think the figure was in the hundreds of millions. Uh, I want to say between two and three hundred million dollars. For it, it was actually interesting because federal regulators didn't actually specify what they were being fined for. They were very vague, basically saying like, uh, as a result of Citigroup's negligence in handling people's uh, information, and then used a really bunch of vague terms to say like they did a bad stuff that we don't really want to get into, and so we're going to fine them like two hundred million dollars. And that happened after they published this study on how racism has cost the United States trillions of dollars. And if you go back further. Uh, Citigroup was also uh, forced to pay rest, uh, restitution to about 2 million credit card customers who were paying uh, higher interest rates than they should have been. Yeah. You, you have uh, like an annual review and then you, you have, you know, if, if you're making payments and all that, then your interest rate is reduced, right? Well, Citigroup wasn't doing that. And so for two, about 2 million customers, they had to pay out uh, like something like over $300 million in restitution to those customers who they were basically ripping off, like illegally ripping off and knowingly ripping off. But again, mm -hmm. fine, because they talk about racism now and they appointed a female CEO. So all the, the really horrible stuff that that, that that institution is involved in is all forgiven and forgotten. Amazing. How, in the few minutes that we have left here, how deep are their ties to the Democratic Party? This uh, black rock group and others how deeply are they in uh with the democratic party i think they're tied to both political parties i think see it's really ironic because uh we when we think of the democratic party or i should say when we think of occupy wall street and that movement we associate it with the democratic party right right the people that were throwing their bodies uh in front of these the, the doors of banks in 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 cities uh, just a few years ago. Well, now that same party is the party that has, or at least in 2020, had more billionaire backers and basically 
uh, more of the nation's most powerful and wealthy institutions supporting Joe Biden. And uh, it's not an exaggeration to say that the Democratic Party has, in the last few years, become the party of the wealthy, and the, the, specifically the ultra-wealthy. The Republican Party has this problem, too. Uh, yeah. they're, they're trying to portray themselves as like the, the new working-class party. They still have these, uh, they, I mean, they're, they're politicians. Yeah. They're going to have the same problems as politicians who happen to be Democrats. Um, whether or not one party is worse than the other in this regard, I can't really say. Uh, I think that, like I said, at the end of the day, this is not a Republican or Democrat problem. It's a, it's a political problem. Yeah, I believe, Pedro, at this point, we, we in America have a one-party system now. When I became, I, I, one time I was a Democrat, but when I, my heart changed, I became a Republican because I like the platform of the Republican Party. God, country, family, freedom, constitution, right? But now we only have one party. I don't see much difference between the Democrats and the Republicans. Um, and so I, I just don't know what. You know, there's a whole, as you said, there are bigger issues going on that we, the people, are not aware of, and it's just so much to deal with. It looked like we may have lost our country that is becoming South Africa, and I don't see how we're going to turn it around. Do you? Well, I think it's easy to, to feel that way, and I feel that way on some days, too, but uh, you have kids, so you know, but I, I basically, I can't. Uh, accept that it's hopeless because yeah. I, I have kids and I, I so I think about like the kind of future that they're going to have and, and the world that, that I'm going to leave them so I I have to hope and and I mean that's the reason I'm doing this right is I'm hoping that uh, that more and more people will notice these things yeah yeah and, I have hope too but you know it just it's a tall order yeah so much going <laughs> on how can people get your website how can they read what you're doing keep up with what you're doing so I, I write primarily at chroniclesmagazine.org. All my writings outside of that, and whenever I do op-eds in other places or interviews like this, I publish them through my newsletter at contra.substack.org. Right on. Or sorry, contra.substack.com. Amazing. Pedro Gonzalez, thank you so much, man. Very smart guy, and I'm not giving up. I do have hope, but it's a mess, man. It's a real mess. Yeah. I agree. Thanks so much for having me. All right, buddy. Thanks for coming on. Amazing. And don't forget to like, follow, tweet, subscribe, and share the Jesse Lee Peterson radio show, folks. We really appreciate it. We are at war. It is a spiritual battle for the soul of America. And it's going to take all of us to do it. <laughs>